Judges chapter 13. We're looking at the last recorded judge in the book of Judges. And the man's name is Samson. Everybody knows who Samson is. He's, of course, besides Gideon, perhaps the most well-known of all the judges. But there's another judge as well that's not recorded in the book of Judges, and his name is Samuel. He judged Israel just about the same time and shortly after the time that uh, uh, Samson was living. They were contemporaries. And some of the details that are given in the book of 1 Samuel kind of overlap the stories of Samuel and some of the other events that will happen at the end of the book of Judges that are recorded here. But uh, Samson is recorded in the book of Judges as the very last of the judges that are recorded for our benefit here in this one book that is known as Judges. So in chapter 13, uh, all the way through to the uh, end of chapter uh, 17, I believe, uh, Samson is going to get a lot of press and uh, uh, more than any of the other uh, judges. And it's interesting to note that Samson was, in most people's opinions, in my opinion as well, less than perfect in terms of his relationship with the Lord. And in spite of that, we see God using him in very, very remarkable ways. But it's because of his lacks, apparent lacks of, of concern for the things of God that he didn't really come to that place of greatness that he probably could have had he been more in tune with uh, the will of God in his life. Although he was one of the judges that it's mentioned that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. In fact, we'll see it twice tonight, and it's another couple of times that it's mentioned that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily. And uh, there are only two other judges where it's recorded that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, Gideon and Jephthah. And so we find here that there is a very, very strong focus on the fact that Samuel, uh, rather Samson, was was not doing everything the way he perhaps should have done, but yet the Lord still used him to bring about at least something of what he had intended to complete through Samson. Now, it tells us very uh, pointedly that in the very beginning of uh, this chapter 13, that Samuel, I keep on saying Samuel, Samson was uh, chosen by the Lord to deliver the Israelites from the oppression that had come upon them by the Philistines. And the oppression lasted for a period of 40 years, as recorded here, and then the Lord sent a deliverer, and that deliverer was Samson. But it's interesting to note that, and we'll see it in a little bit as we read forward, that Samson again didn't really do a complete job of delivering the nation of Israel from the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines will continue to oppress the people of Israel 
well after Samson's death until the time of David. And so we see that there is not a completeness involved in this deliverance. And we'll see why as we move forward in the text. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is a phrase that has been repeated several times. This is the seventh cycle of apostasy or turning away from God that is recorded in the book of Judges. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the result of their having turned from God, having done evil in the sight of the Lord, was that God brought judgment against them by letting the Philistines this time uh, be dominant in the land of Israel. And uh, they were a very oppressive people. Now, just to be careful not to confuse the word Philistines with the modern Palestinian people. They are not the same people at all. The Philistines were Gentiles. They came primarily from the island of Crete and perhaps as far away as Spain, but they came from the western Mediterranean region into the shores of Israel along that strip of the Mediterranean sea in the land of Israel that is known today as Gaza. So they're in the same territory as where the Palestinians are now, but they are not the same people. The Palestinians are descendants of Shem. They are Semitic. They are descendants of Abraham through mostly Ishmael. The Philistines were not. The name Palestine came from Roman influence. It happened in the first century when Rome had the entire area of Judea and Samaria and Israel under their authority that because of the way that the Jews continued to rebel against Rome, Rome gave them a name that they wanted to make the Jews hate. And that name was Palestinians. It is the Roman name for Philistia. Philistines. They were just basically saying to the Jews that the territory was Philistine territory and the Romans were recognized that Philistines were there present in those ancient days and it was an offense to the Jews. But it was Jews in Palestinia. It was not Arabs in Palestinia. It was a Jewish state within the land, the borders that are still very much like they are today of the nation of Israel, but the Romans classified that territory with the name Palestine as an offense to the Jews. The Palestinian peoples are, again, Arab in their descendancy. They have probably more Egyptian and Jordanian blood in them than any other of the uh, areas of the Arabic nations around them. So again, they're not the same people group. The Palestinians did not inhabit the land of Israel until modern times. So we have here the Philistines again oppressing the people of Israel 
for this longest period of time recorded in the book of Judges, for a total of 40 years before God finally began to act. Now it tells us in verse 2, Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Should sound familiar. That's a theme that is presented for us in more than one place uh, throughout the scriptures. God has chosen to use individuals and do something very miraculous in their lives with regard to bringing into being an individual that he will use. He did it with Abraham and Sarah. He did it with uh, Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother. He did it here with uh, the parents of Samson. He did it with others as well. Throughout the Word of God, we see that over and over again. A woman is barren and then she bears a child, and that child has a significant history within the nation of Israel. The certain man was Manoah. He was from the tribe of Dan. And where he was living was a town that bordered the area of the Philistine peoples. He was a Danite. And his wife was barren, had no children. Verse 3, verse 3 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, his wife, and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Note that it says in verse 3 again, The angel of the Lord. And this again is another Christophany or Theophany. It's appearance of Christ in his pre-incarnate form upon the earth as he speaks to and delivers a promise to somebody in Israel that has need for a special visit from their Lord. And this is what is taking place here. Verse 4 says, Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, or strong drink really is better translation, and not to eat anything unclean. The reason... He says in verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the land, out of the hand of the Philistines. Take note of the fact that the angel of the Lord is telling Manoah's wife that she is going to bear a son, and he's going to have to live a life of a Nazarite. Now, according to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, a Nazarite was any individual who wanted to dedicate himself or herself to the service of the Lord, and in becoming a Nazarite, they made what was known as a Nazarite vow, and that Nazarite vow was to refrain from strong drink, to uh, not touch any dead body, and to not allow any a razor to cut the hair. That was a Nazarite vow. Now, God, through the angel of the Lord, is speaking to Manoah's wife and saying that she must make sure that she does not uh, take any strong drink or any wine, has nothing to do with the grapes uh, uh, or any produce that comes from grapes, and she also must not eat any unclean animals. So she herself has to make a sort of a limited version of a Nazarite vow in order to be the woman that God would bring forth this deliverer for the nation of Israel. 
So she had a responsibility to do those things and she needed to commit to the fact that when he is born, that he will be raised with that Nazarite vow in place for him, for him on his behalf. Instead of his making that decision himself, it is made for him by the Lord before he is even born. That's pretty important. And it's really amazing when you think about it. This young boy growing up must have been told by his parents, this is what you must remember. You are a person that has been dedicated to the Lord and that you are never to do anything that is forbidden according to the Nazarite vow that we made for you on your behalf before you were born. That may have been part of the reason why Samson was not quite what he should have been. He himself did not make that vow personally. It was given to him as a heritage from the Lord. It should have been a great honor, but I'm not really sure that he saw it that way. And when we continue to look through this section of the scriptures that speak of the exploits of Samson, I think we'll find that there was a lot of well, deviation, if you will, from the will of God. But he was a Nazarite from the birth, as according to the angel of the Lord, it's spoken here. And he will begin, it says, to deliver Israel out of the land, out of the hand of the Philistines. Note that when he brought a deliverer in all of the other cases throughout the judges up to this point, the Judge was brought into that place to deliver the people of Israel from their oppression. It wasn't a partial deliverer. It wasn't a beginning of a delivery. It was a complete delivery that that particular judge performed on behalf of the people. And this time, it is very, very simply put that he will begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. It won't be a complete task fulfilled. There's going to be a period of time after Samson again is already off the scene where the Philistines will still continue to dominate Israel. But he is going to begin the process of delivery. Verse 6 says, So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah, her husband, prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. So here we find out that Manoah is a man of prayer. There were apparently still some in the nation who had not turned from Jehovah or Yahweh, but were serving him as much as they were able to faithfully. And this appears to be the case with Manoah and his wife. They were godly people. They prayed to the Lord and they sought his will, especially now that they've seen that God has spoken in a very, very wonderful way to Manoah's wife. Now again, Manoah is asking for help in knowing 
more details about that which has been promised. He wants to know how they are going to raise this particular child to accomplish the task that God has set for him to do. Verse 9 says, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But again, Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So that's a pretty exciting thing. Imagine she must have insisted that the angel of the Lord, please stay where you're at, I'm going to go get my husband. It doesn't really say that in the text, but apparently she was confident that he would most likely still be there when she comes back there with Manoah. And she tells him, again, the man has come again, he's appeared to me a second time. And so now in verse 11, Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Notice that Manoah's wife's name is not mentioned at all. She's referred to as this woman or the woman that the Lord spoke to. It's interesting that she remains unidentified and she takes such a major place in the Word of God, but her name is not known to us. But it's interesting also that we'll find out that this appearance of this angel of the Lord is pretty secretive about his name as well. It goes on to say in verse 12, Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will a boy's rule of life be and his work? I need to know a little bit more detail. Can you give me more details about how we are to raise this young boy and, and, and what, it's, what it's going to look like for him when he grows up and when he begins the ministry that you've planned for him? Can you give me the information that I'm looking for? And yes, the angel of the Lord could certainly have done that. But listen to his answer. In verse 13, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. This is all that they get from the angel of the Lord with regard to what they are to do. They are to only be obedient to the simple command that the angel of the Lord had given to her in respect to her not drinking any wine or strong drink and not eating anything unclean. That's all that she needs to do, all that Manoah needs to know. And if they both are willing to comply with that simple request, God will take care of the rest. So that's a trust thing. Just as much as it is for us today, God gives us limited information, does he not? And we have to go with what we do know and trust God for the rest. Well, this is exactly what's taking place here with regard to Manoah and his wife. They have just a bit of information to go on, but it ought to be enough for them to fulfill God's purpose and plan in their lives and in the life of their son who will be born. Verse 15 says, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. He wanted to share a meal with this angel of the Lord. It was a very wonderful, hospitable thing for him to offer. Uh, but just like it was with Gideon, you may remember in Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord chooses not to eat any portion of meat that they have for him. But instead, listen to what the angel of the Lord says. It says in verse 16, The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you do detain me, I will not eat your food. 
But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not yet know that he was the angel of the Lord. As far as he was concerned, he was a prophet perhaps, or just a man like himself coming through that he hadn't ever met before that knew something about the will of God and was speaking that information to Manoah and his wife. But he'll find out soon enough the identity of this particular one, although he's going to ask specifically, what is your name? As we see here in a moment, it tells us, in verse 17, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? He wants to be able at least to address him by name. And it's interesting, take very careful note of what the response is of this angel of the Lord who has appeared before him. In verse 18 it says, The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That word wonderful stands out as a very unique word in the Hebrew. It's a simple word, pili, and it means incomprehensible. Or it, it might also be translated as it is here, wonderful, in a few other places with a different word. But it is a word, nonetheless, that is used by Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. The very same word when Isaiah says a son will be born, a child will be given, and his name will be called Wonderful. That's the word. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name will be called Wonderful. This individual that is standing before Manoah and his wife identifies himself as that one who has that name given, and no other person but Jesus Christ has ever been given that name. So that's why this, again, is a very strong indicator to us that this angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord has met with them. And so in verse 19 it says, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord, and he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened, as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell to their faces to the ground. Exactly what took place with Gideon back in Judges chapter 6. He placed an offering on a rock, and the offering was consumed by a fire, and the Lord disappeared from his sight. In the same fashion, this is what's taking place here as well with Manoah and his wife. And then it tells us in verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die. Why? Because we have seen God. He was no longer thinking this is just a man. Obviously it's not. And it had to be God himself appearing before them and in such a spectacular way going up, ascending in that flame of the offering to demonstrate that he is a supernatural being. And that convinced Manoah that he had been in the very presence of God. And that shook him up. He knew the word of God enough to know that God had told Moses, no man can see me and live. 
And now Manoah is faced with reality. He just saw some representation of the true and living God that has stood before them and commanded them to do certain things and then completely disappeared before their eyes and it has shaken him so much that he says this in verse 22. Again, Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, and she's got some smarts here, she's basically more realistic in her understanding of what's been going on and her approach to this particular event that they have just witnessed. She said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So she's convincing him, and it's very right that she's saying these things. How could it be that he would want to kill us if he's going to be bringing this man into the world through us? It made no sense to her. She just made sure that she reminded him of the truth of what had been told them, and it was comforting, I think, to her, and I believe to him, ultimately, to realize that, no, they're not going to die. Of course not. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a thing that he's going to do through them. So he would not be killing them before any of this could have happened. So verse 24 continues and says, So the woman bore a son, and she called his name Samson. And by the way, the word Samson means sunlight or sunny. Uh, it's an appropriate name. They were in a very dark time in their history, in their lives, were threatened by the Philistines constantly. And so Samson, now being born, is bringing a little sunlight into their lives. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And verse 25 says, important, the verse 25 says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, at Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. That's the first appearance of the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Came upon him for service, just as he did with the others. And he's doing it today in the same way. He comes upon us for service. I repeated that over and over again. I hope that's understood and that is applied in our everyday lives. Seek to have the Spirit of God come upon you for service. He already dwells in you and will continue to dwell in you. And He's always been with you. And He always will remain with you. But He comes upon you at your request for that empowerment whenever you want to do anything for the Lord. It should always be preceded with a request, Lord, Pour out your Holy Spirit upon me that I might do this thing for your glory. And that's what's taking place now in Samson's life. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon him at specific times and in specific events throughout his life. And we'll see some of those as we move forward. Chapter 14 continues now. Samson has grown into adulthood. Some 20 years have passed, perhaps. Uh, he's not, we're not given any details about his childhood, just kind of like it was with Jesus. Now he steps into adulthood. But he now begins to demonstrate some of his shortcomings in a very, very rapid-fire way as we proceed through these next few chapters. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says, Now Samson went down to Timnah, which is a village in Palestine, Palestine 
in the Palestinian land, not in Israeli land, but he's roaming around in this territory of Palestine. And it says he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And so he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. That's a command that he's making to his parents. I want this woman. Get her for me. Now, it was the obligation that the father would make on behalf of his children to arrange for a marriage for their children. That's not outside of that which is normal. But what's outside of normalcy here is the fact that he made the demand that his father, instead of finding a woman within his own country, his own people group of the Jews, he wanted a Philistine woman. That was not acceptable to God. That was against the law. I believe Manoah would have been very much aware of that. But Samson insisted upon this, and he pressed them, and he pressed them, and he apparently was successful in causing them to say, oh, all right, we'll do it. But it was certainly not in God's perfect plan. However, we're going to see that God did indeed intend for it to happen. It says in verse 3, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? That was a detestable thing to him. And Samson said to his father, No, go get her for me, for she pleases me well. His mind had been made up. He was absolutely convinced this is the woman that he wants to marry. So his father finally went ahead with it. And it says in verse 4, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. In other words, God was using this to further his perfect plan for the people of God. It was not a godly thing for Samson to do. It was against the Mosaic law. But God used it in spite of that to bring about his perfect will. Now, I'm not sure that that's something that we should try to take advantage of, my friends. Never, ever go outside of the will of God, no matter what you think God might be able to do with it. It is never proper for us to do something outside of God's will, thinking that he's going to cover us because we're his child. That's not the way it works. God will not allow any of us to move down that path for very long without consequences. And there are consequences with Samson in this particular decision that he has made. But God still used it. And it was indeed God's will and purpose being fulfilled to initiate that which was to begin with Samson in the deliverance of the people of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He was seeking an occasion, it tells us, God was, to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Verse 5 continues to say, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, 
a young lion came roaring against them. Now, he's alone at this particular juncture. And it tells us a second time now, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now, it's interesting to note that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and gives him some kind of strength to be able to take a lion and tear it limb from limb. An amazing strength that this would have had to have been. And he does that secretly, without his parents being made aware of it. He did not tell his father or his mother what had been done. Now that's going to be something that we'll look at a little bit further on as this chapter unfolds. Then it says in verse 7, that he went down and he talked with the woman and she pleased Samson well. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. The primary reason why he would not have told them this is because to take the honey out of the carcass of a lion would mean that he had to defile himself by touching a dead body against the Nazarite vow that he was to be living throughout his life. So not only has he chosen to do something against the law of Moses with regard to marrying a Canaanite woman, but he also now has defiled himself and he has gone against that which he had committed himself as a Nazarite would have done. But not only that, in sharing that honey with his parents, unbeknownst to them, that honey had touched an unclean thing. And as far as the Mosaic law was concerned, it now was unclean, and they would have touched something that was unclean, thereby making them unclean, and they were totally unaware of it. So it's wrong on many different counts. Sin has a tendency to affect not just us, but others as well. We need to be mindful of that as well as we continue to live for him. If we sin, our sin does not just affect us. It affects other people. Always has been that way. There's only one sin that would not affect others. It's described in the book uh, in the New Testament. But be mindful of the fact that the majority of sins that we can commit, transgressions that we might do against our Lord, are going to affect other people as well as ourselves. Well, verse 10 says, So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, these are all Philistines. They're not Israelites. They're the Philistines. They're friends and neighbors of the woman that he wants to marry. And then it says in verse 12, Then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you. Now, he's very clever. He thinks he's going to be able to do something here that will gain him some kind of privilege, and he has an idea that they won't ever be able to figure this thing out. And he tells us here in verse 12, Let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But 
If you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothing. And they said to him, Pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. That's the riddle. They had to solve the riddle by identifying who it is that he's speaking of. The eater and also the sweet. The strong and something to eat. There are two things that he knows will meet those criteria of the riddle. He alone knows this. He hasn't even told his parents, remember. So, they agreed to it. They said, sure, we'll try to figure that out. That sounds like quite a challenge, but we'll do what we can to figure it out. So they were up against a timeline of seven days. Now, after three days, they couldn't come up with an answer. And they began to worry about it. It's not easy. They couldn't really come up with an answer. So, it tells us in verse 15, it came to pass on the fourth day, some translations say seventh day, but it should be, I believe, a fourth day as it is in the uh, uh, the uh, certain Syrian, Syriac rather, uh, manuscripts. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, and by the way, they haven't yet consummated the marriage. She is his wife in the same sense that Joseph and Mary in the New Testament were husband and wife. Though they weren't yet consummated, they were considered to be married in their espousal state. And the consummation would come at the end of the feast in Samson's time as, as it would also in Joseph and Mary's case as well. But they were considered to be married and the only way to eliminate that marriage decision would be through a letter of divorcement. But here in this particular story, it just simply tells us that on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Good friends, wouldn't you say? But they threatened her. And so she's got this problem. She's got to find out what the riddle was to save her own skin and that of her father and his household. And then they add to that, have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? So they were accusing her of scheming with Samson in this riddle that he has proposed. She had nothing to do with the riddle. She had no idea what it was all about. So she's basically innocent, but she's desperate to find out. And the only way that she knows of to find out from Samson what the riddle was, was to torment him by doing the following. It says in verse 16, Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. So she's crying all the time, complaining that she's kept something from him. And by the way, this story is not a reason why any man should keep secrets from his wife or vice versa. There are some things that perhaps should remain untold, but there's no real good reason for keeping secrets uh, between us, husbands and wives. But he says to her, Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother. 
So should I explain it to you? You know, we're married, but we've not consummate, consummated the wedding, and my parents don't even know. I'm closer to them than I am at this point to you. And should I explain it to you if I haven't explained it to them? So he thinks this is a valid argument. Probably isn't, but he thinks that it is. But now she kept on weeping, and on the seventh day, continuing to do so, and nearing the end of the feast, she's still trying to get him to change his mind. Verse 17 says, She had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he finally broke down and told her, because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Well, what do you think? Was that something that she should have done? Again, she was more concerned about her own skin and the fact that her father was threatened by this as well. She had no choice but to do what she did next. And she tells the men, this is what the riddle means. And so in verse 18, it tells us, So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? That's the answer to the riddle. And then, look at Samson's answer. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, he's called his wife a cow, basically. Um, Probably not a good thing to do. But it actually is a real truthful thought although it's not worded the way most of us would word it, right, men? But here it is. You don't plow with a cow. You use an oxen for that purpose. Cows give milk. They're used for different purposes. So the implication is in this statement that you have not plowed, if you had not plowed with my heifer, he's saying that if you hadn't done what you shouldn't have done. And he was angry. If you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have been able to solve my riddle. And then in verse 19, for now the third time, it tells us, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now what he's about to do is kind of cruel. And again, the purpose that God is allowing this to happen is to bring about that part of his plan that will initiate the deliverance of the people of Israel from the hands and the oppression of the Philistines. He went down, it tells us in verse 19, to Ashkelon, one of the major cities in Gaza, in the land of the Philistines, some distance away from the place where they were, by the way, so that he wouldn't be immediately found out. But he goes down to Ashkelon, and he kills 30 of their men, He took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. And so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So what has taken place is now that Samson has given them the clothing to finalize the transaction, if you will, he was so angry that he doesn't consummate the wedding vow. He leaves her and comes back to his father's house. And as a result, it leaves the woman in a very, very precarious place. She now has been 
basically discarded by the man who was to become her husband. So her father takes a very, very Philistine kind of step, if you will. He gives her to somebody else. Okay, if Samson isn't going to have you, we'll give you to his best man. And so that's what he did. So she is able to get married on the appointed day of her marriage to save face. Samson isn't aware of this until later. Chapter 15, and we're not going to read the whole of the chapter, but we're going to go through a small portion of it because it continues the story here. It says, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. For her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please, take her instead. So, hey, she's not available anymore here. My other sister, my other daughter's available. Take her instead. What arrangements were made back then? Um, I'm not sure that I would have personally enjoyed that option. But, that is what the man offered. And Samson replies in verse 3 and said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. So he's recognizing the fact that he was blameful for the act that he had done in anger with the 30 that he had killed. Now this time he's taking revenge. And he says, Because of what you have done to me, I am going to do something that you will remember. Because you have treated me very wrongly, and I'm going to retaliate. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's not a part of Samson's lifestyle. Samson will take the time to work out a payment plan, if you will, for what that man has done to him. And we'll look at that the next time, along with some of the other things that Samson is going to do in his beginning of the deliverance of the nation of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So we'll cover that material next time. Until then, my friends, God bless you. Grace and peace.